stream, right? Okay, so we're going to finish up this series called The Son is Given. And uh, one more time about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. My buddy sent me a message asking me, hey, you know, Pastor Kevin, what's the, what's the Christmas Eve service about? I'm like, Jesus, what else? You know, I mean, is there, is there another subject that's worth talking about besides Jesus? <laughs> Christmas is not about what you gave. It's not even about what you've received. It's about what God gave. Isn't it true? When we receive gifts and we all got wonderful gifts, those gifts mean very little without love, don't they? Right? The most meaningful gifts, even if it's something simple, a cupcake with a candle on it, and somebody says, I just bless you, and I just want to let you know that I love you. You know, It's meaningful. It's not the extravagance of the gift that, beca- that presents the meaning. It's the love behind the gift. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus. The Bible says that God so loved, he so loved the world that he gave his only son. He so loved us that whoever would believe in him would not perish. It's not God's will for mankind to perish. It's not God's will for mankind to be broken. It's not God's will that mankind suffer through the things that we suffer through in this world. And then ultimately without him, we are lost. That's not God's will. It says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is Jesus talking about himself, actually, in third person, which is interesting. So I didn't come to condemn the world. I've not been sent forth to condemn. I've been sent forth to save. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten of the Father. And what is the condemnation? That light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Interesting. God gives us a gift at Christmas time. That's really what it's all about. And it's interesting when you read this passage, and these words are oftentimes abused and misused and misunderstood. So we don't understand these words, but we need to. The word for condemnation is the Greek word krino. It's where we get the word crisis from. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring the crisis. That's what he says. But man's in a crisis, isn't he? This is the condemnation. This is the crisis. The crisis of our life, it's a moment where something happens that shifts you or makes, forces you to a place of decision. Midlife crisis, anybody know what I'm talking about? You hit that big 5-0 or 6-0 or 4-0 or whatever it is, and you're like, whoa, you're having a crisis. You're in a moment of decision. Do I want to keep living the way that I used to live, or do I want to live a different way? So the Greek word is krino, and it means crisis. It means to separate with a judgment. God said, I did not come to separate you with a judgment. He will do that, but that's not why he came the first time. But man is in a crisis. Man is now put in a place where he must separate himself according to the understanding of the crisis that he's in. We're lost and we need Jesus. So the first thing I want you to understand is what this, when God is talking about condemnation here, he's talking about crisis. He's talking about a crisis. That's literally what the word means. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. What is the word? Well, the, the, the root of the word is this word called sozo, but that's not the word he uses here. He uses the word satorion. And so the word satorion, so sozo means saved, healed, and delivered. So Jesus comes. The word salvation means to save you, means to take you out of something, means to heal you, which creates a wholeness. It means to deliver you. Deliver you from what? So we're saved from our sins, we're healed 
The understanding is healed spiritually, healed emotionally, and healed mentally. That's a process. Spiritual healing comes quick. Physical healing and mental healing and emotional healing is often the process. That's a process of transformation. But nonetheless, it's available to us. Saved, healed, and delivered. Delivered immediately from the condemnation of sin. But as the believer walks with the Lord, we become delivered from old lifestyles. We become delivered from old habits. We become delivered from many things. So the promise to, the, the promise to those who receive Christ is to be delivered, to be have sozo, this was always a future promise. The word that's used here is satorion, and it means right now. It means that Jesus has come to apply it now. He's not come to talk about sozo. So what it means. It means an applied act. So when he uses the word sozo, he means saved, healed, and delivered. When he's using the word satorion, he means that I'm doing it now. This wasn't a future event. Jesus came to apply the act that man can be saved, man can be healed, and man can be delivered. Man can be ultimately not just given eternal life, but man can be given a new life. This word, evil. Man's deeds were evil. They don't come to the light because your deeds are evil. And we all go, what does that mean? All right? It means actions caused by intent or malice. That's what evil is. That's how God sees evil. Something that you do by intent and something that you do by malice. And we all have that, right? Happy day. We're all screwed up. We're all functionally dysfunctional. Here's our problem. Sin is in us all. We, have, we need Jesus. What does sin produce? It produces weakness. It produces waywardness. And it produces wickedness. Now, there's a difference between weakness, waywardness, and wickedness. Man does not come to Christ, not because of his weakness or his waywardness. Man does not come to Christ because of his wickedness, the self-seeking, self-serving attitude within his heart. Jesus overlooks the weakness, overlooks the waywardness, but commands us to repent of our wickedness, our willful actions, our willful decision to walk away from him. That's what it means to surrender to his lordship. When you're born again, you're given strength and weakness. Happy day. We think we're strong. We're not strong. You're not strong enough to do life by yourself or with any. No, there is no human confederation or no human organization that is strong enough to do life together. Human organizations fail because humans are weak. We were never created to be self-sustaining. We were created to be codependent. That's why we were created. That's why codependency, I teach you guys this, is so easy you know, we have this psychology and we'd go to all these therapists and we've defined the condition of codependency, yet we don't understand why it is that we're so easily and quickly codependent. The reason we're so quickly and easily codependent is because we're created to be codependent, not codependent on each other or substances or anything like that. We are created to be codependent on the Lord. In him we live, move, and have our being. You're to breathe him, live him, think about him, in, intertwine every part of your life. Literal codependency. That's what codependency is. What are you doing? What are you thinking about? What are you saying? Where are you at? Can I be where you are? You know, I need, I need, I need. You know, it's just this, this, this desperate need for a bond. Anybody ever experienced codependency? Yes? All right, we have a couple people here who are honest. The rest of you, well, I'm just going to bring it back to, um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I won't go there. So we have this codependency. We're created to be codependent because we're weak. We're weak. He doesn't have a problem with that. He doesn't have a problem with your weakness. You have a problem with your weakness. 
He doesn't have a problem with your weakness. People always want to pretend that they're strong. Human beings are incredibly weak. We are so weak. How long can you hold up your weight? Not very long. Not very long. We don't have the ability. If you're, if even, even if you were to like stand in a push-up position and hold your arms stiff, or you were to stand in somehow where you had to support some part of your life for any period of time, you couldn't do it very long at all. Not just are you physically weak, you are emotionally weak. Not just are you emotionally weak, you are mentally weak. All are. And pride masks that weakness. You understand that? Human pride masks the weakness. The greatest thing you could ever come to is the end of yourself and realizing that you're weak. But his strength is perfected in your weakness. I know nothing. People go, you know a lot of things. No, I know nothing. Jesus knows everything. Whatever I know is subordinated to him. You know, every, every part of my life is, is weak in comparison to him. And if I will submit my weakness unto him and draw from his strength, then my weakness becomes strength to me. People are weak. Sin has broken us all. We're all desperately broken, desperately weak. So do yourself a favor and try, stop trying to convince yourself that you're strong because you're not. You can be strong, but you are not strong in and of yourself. There are aspects of strength, but what is that strength compared to? Each other. But your strength, even compared to the way life is, is desperately weak. Desperately. You have good days, you have bad days, don't you? You have good years, you have good, bad years. You have good weeks, you have bad weeks. Some days you got it all together and you're, yeah. And then other days you're just like, <laughs> you want to hide from the world. You don't want to deal with anything. Not only do we have weakness, we have waywardness. Waywardness is where we just start following all of these paths. That looks like a good idea. That looks like a good idea. And we go down and all of a sudden we realize, how did we get here? How did we end up in this place? We're wayward. We just wander aimlessly in directions that seem right for us. It seems like a good idea. That seems like a good idea. That seems like a good idea. And it produces waywardness. You understand how we're created? We're created to have strength in and from the Lord. We look to draw from and live from the strength that we get from him. Which means we got to go for it. We're, 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 we are to live, look to, and draw from our direction from the Lord. And that produces no, a lack of waywardness. Listen, your ideas are not good enough. You don't care how smart you are. You're rolling the dice every time you make a decision. Right? That's why most people don't like to make decisions. Do you know that? Most people, they prefer safety over destiny. Uh-huh. And because they don't trust their decision-making power. It's true. They're insecure about making the decision. They're unsure about making the decision. The Bible says he'll counsel you. God will lead you. Right? In all your ways, acknowledge him. Lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will what? What will he do? If, I, if in all my ways I acknowledge the Lord, what does he promise to do for me? Anybody? Direct my paths. Right? Exactly. I'm not going to wander I'm not going to be wayward if the Lord is the one directing my paths. He will guide you. He will direct you. Human pride is the biggest problem. Our biggest problem is self-will. That's what leads us to believe that we're actually smart and actually strong. You have intelligence, but your intelligence is meant to be subordinate to the Spirit of God. You have strength, but your strength is intended to be subordinated to the Spirit of God. Your strength is not about you. Your intellect is not about you. None of this is about you. None of it. None of it. We got people who try to build churches without Jesus. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. 
We build all kinds of monuments and all kinds of structures and even successful from outward circumstances. But you can run to the end of the highway, as Keith Green said, and find that there's nothing there. You can build an entire life. Your accountability and what God is looking for from your life is not what you do. It's what he told you to do. It's irrelevant. You can do all of these magnificent things, but if you've not done what he's told you to do, you've failed to the uttermost. It's not about anything about, it's not anything about yourself. It's about him and what he's told you to do. That's the training. That's the relational aspect of who we are. But we actually, we act like we know everything. We don't know anything. That's lesson one. Came to follow the Holy Spirit. Want to follow the Holy Spirit. Want to go into deep levels and new dimensions with the Holy Spirit. Neglected the Holy Spirit for too long. Knew him, left him. Because the Holy Spirit's not popular in churches, you see. It's not popular. Oh, we, we acknowledge him with a nod and a wink and a, you know, a name. But there is no active power, presence, river, flow. There is no accumulated understanding of what he truly wants. Right? So we either have people completely off the rails doing all these crazy things and calling them spirit. Or we have people over here that do nothing and then they call that spirit. So we either have this off the rails behavior that we call spirit. Or we have this absolute lockdown, you know, control, and we call that spirit. Well, where is it? It's not, it's not in either one. <laughs> He's not in either one. Doesn't mean that God doesn't move experientially. He does. Doesn't mean that God doesn't move through structure and order. He does. But where is, what is the Holy Spirit doing? The co- first, you want to know what the Holy Spirit's doing? I'm going to tell you. The first thing, you've you got to start asking him. You have to start communing with him. You have to start understanding him. You presume nothing. Rule one. I'll teach you guys how to follow the Holy Spirit. I'll give you rule one. You presume nothing, that's rule one, and very close, I would say rule one, part B, is you know nothing. Our problem is we presume upon the Lord. We presume upon him. We think we know what he's saying. We think we know what he's doing. Or he gives us a word and we immediately begin to interpret it. It's not yours to interpret. It's his to interpret. It's a dimension. He gives you a word and then you come back to him. It's this interplay between you and him where you're constantly drawing from him. You know nothing. You know nothing. It's rule one. You want to follow the Holy Spirit? Rule one. You know nothing. You don't know anything. You don't have any good ideas. You have no good ideas. The Holy Spirit is the only good idea you have. And whatever he tells you to do, that's what you do. Isn't that the wedding feast? Parable of the wedding feast? Isn't that how water turned to wine? Isn't how miracle power was released? First miracle was released how? When Mary told the servants, whatever he says, do it. Don't think, don't reason it, don't contemplate it within yourself. Do what he told you to do. Go to him, and if he says do this, you do this. You don't know a thing. You don't give him a lecture. Lord, you know that water can't turn into wine. You do understand that. You understand that. You do understand that if we offer water to these people telling them it's wine, they're not going to, of course, think it's wine either. They didn't give him a lecture. They didn't give him a speech. They didn't try to interpret what it was that they were doing. They did what he told them to do. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a relationship along the way. This is how we get rid of our waywardness. Strength comes in, our, our weakness becomes strength through the Holy Spirit. Our waywardness becomes, becomes direction and wisdom and destiny through the Holy Spirit. But most people can't do it. Most people, unfortunately, can't do it, but it's available to all believers. He transforms our wickedness, so he gives us strength and weakness. He will bring us out of our waywardness. He will give us the counsel of the Holy Spirit who will do what? Lead us. Lead us how? Into everything that is true. So what's the Holy Spirit given to us to do? Lead us into things that are true. 
This is what we do. A lot of times I see it all the time. People want to know, what's the Holy Spirit's will for me? You know what? You got a word for me, pastor? You got a word for me? Yeah, there's always a word. Question isn't whether there's a word. Question is, are you going to do what you're told? Here's the word. I see people go, oh, wow, that's a great word. And then they leave. Like, were you going to do anything with that word? You going to do anything with what was just told you? God gives you direction and wisdom. And we want to know the wisdom and direction so that we can decide whether or not we want to follow it or not. That's really what it comes down to. Really comes down to that. But nonetheless, God's wisdom is available for you. And if you've been wayward as a Christian and you've not listened to God and you've settled for security over destiny, that's okay. You can change today. Just got, he'll give you a word. He's got a fresh word. He's got a word in season and in time for wherever you are. There is a word for you in the time that you are, and there is a word for you in the season that you are. He always has a word for you. A word in season, golden apples and settings of silver. He has a word. And so God gives us strength in our weakness through Christ. He gives us wisdom in our waywardness, and he transforms your wickedness. He literally gets rid of your old nature. He doesn't even deal with that. He doesn't, so like, like okay, so the, the, the strength and weakness, it's like strength is the accessory. You know, we can access that, right? <laughs> waywardness, we can access wisdom. But God doesn't even want to deal with your old nature. He completely gets rid of it. Old things pass away, behold, all things come new. Your, your, your selfishness is done away with. That doesn't mean you can still act selfishly. You can, but you have a conviction when you act selfishly. Is anybody with me? Big difference. I don't know if you all are here. I used to be a sinner. My name is Kevin. I used to be a sinner. That guy died a long time ago, but I can remember a few stories about him that when he would actually do things in malice and do things in self-intent, he really didn't feel any conviction that he was wrong. But then when all of a sudden that guy died and now there's this new dude called Kevin, and now if this guy, he's born again, he's been given a new nature. So when I act in malice or I act in selfishness, that doesn't mean I can act in malice. I can. doesn't mean I can act in selfishness. I can. The difference is, is I now have a conviction. Whereas before I had no conviction. That's why people can wound people and not even, they're just so indifferent to the feelings of others because of the sin and the blackness of the heart. But as the believer, you have the conviction of the Holy Spirit. People ask, how do I know if I'm born again? And I say, well, it's the difference between being a pig and being a sheep. When you get in the mud, do you roll in it? Or when you get in the mud, do you cry out? See, if you're not redeemed and you're not in a Christ, it doesn't mean that the sheep can't get in the mud. The sheep can get in the mud pen just as easily as the pig can get in the mud pen. But the pig likes to get in the mud and likes to throw the mud all around him and roll around in it and snort and snout and everything else. Loves the mud. But every time a lamb is in the mud, watch, they don't like it. Sheep don't lie in mud. They lie in grass. They don't like it. They like actually dry places. Sheep actually prefer high places. If you watch how just even how those, those, those animals migrate, they, they don't like mud. They get very annoyed, irritated, and start driving the shepherd crazy when they're in mud. That's how you know if you're a sheep or not. When you get in mud, does it bother you? you know? Or do you start throwing it on your back and going, come on, guys, woo, come into the mud. We're born again. God transforms our wickedness or something different about you. doesn't mean you can't do those things. You do, but there's a conviction on your heart. You know it's wrong now. That's the difference. The son was given. Okay, so we have a son that was given to us. He was given to us to help us in our waywardness. He was given to us to free us from our wickedness. He's given to us to to give us strength in our weakness. The conception of Jesus within Mary was divine, but the birth was natural. Mary had labor pains, ladies. Mary had difficulty birthing that child. It wasn't like, yeah, he just 
flew out of, the, out of her womb and appeared on her lap. That's not how it meant. But her, his conception was divine. Jesus was not born of the blood of Adam. He was born of the blood of heaven. There's actually a biological and medical fact that we probably didn't discover this until at least the 19th or 20th century, that a baby's blood and the mother's blood never mix. Do you know that? Never. The placenta membrane prevents the, two mother, the mother and the, and the, and the child, from, their blood never mixes, ever. You don't think the Lord knew that? When Mary conceived? Conceived of what? The blood of heaven, not the blood of the earth. Conceived of what? Divine birth, divine order. She didn't, he wasn't born of Adam's blood. Adam's blood had sin in it. Heaven's blood has no sin. So she was able to carry him, and yet her blood as a fallen woman never mixed with his. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Took us, what, 1,900 years to figure that out? 2,000 years from Jesus' birth alone? Until, we think we're so, so That's what I tell my wife. I'm like, we think we're so smart. We're like, you know, they used to give LSD to, like, mental patients. This is how smart we really are. So when LSD came out, they thought it was something that would actually cure the mind. This is how genius we are as human beings. I was telling Sherry, they used to give LSD. That's why it was so popular in the 60s, because they thought it was this thing that was going to free your mind. And they were giving it out in mental hospitals. So you got Uncle Bill's schizophrenic here. Give him a couple of, give him some microdot here. Give him some acid. You know, he'll, he'll, you know, he'll perk right up. This is how smart we are. Yeah? We think all this stuff helps us. We're, we're not, we don't know anything, man. We don't know anything. Takes us 1,900 years to figure out that blood from a woman and a baby don't mix. Oh, wow, that's interesting. I wonder what application that has. It has this application. It has the application that God can solemnly say thousands of years before the event that he will be born of a virgin and he will not be born of human seed. And it will be backed up, not just by somebody says it's a myth. It's a biological fact. It's a miracle, and not only is it a miracle, it's backed up by biological, scientific evidence that it can happen. Virgin conception, divine, but yet the blood of the mother and the blood of the baby don't mix. Absolutely. So he can be born of pure blood through the virgin birth. So Jesus is born to do these things for us. He was conceived by divine act, and he was born by human means. So he is the divine son, born into the natural world, and he was born in times and seasons. I love it. Times and seasons. Even so, when we were children under bondage, we were under the bondage of the elements of this world, Galatians 4. We were under the world system. Mankind, from the fall of man until all the way up until the time of Christ, we had no choice. We were bound to the world's system. We had no way out. No way out. That's why in Christ you're not bound to the world's system. You're bound to heaven. Your economy is not of the earth. Your economy is of heaven. Your culture is not of the earth. Your culture is of heaven. Right? Heaven doesn't lose. The world's going to lose, but we don't. We never lose. We succeed. We go from glory to glory to glory to glory. When the world goes down, the kingdom goes up because we are not of this world. We are of a different culture, a different system. Our problem is, is we don't participate in that system enough and we don't activate that world into our arm. That's why Jesus tells us on earth as it is in heaven. We draw from his world into ours because we are not of this world. Our power comes not from this world. It comes from above. Your provision comes not from this world. It comes from above. Yes, God will provide through you, through people, places, and things, but he will put favor on your life and create doors of access for you that other people can't get. He, he provides through natural means, but he, does, he provides favor. Right? He puts favor on those natural means. We were under bondage in the elements of the system of the world, so man had no hope. He was bound only to the system of the world. 
But when the fullness of the time had come, when the appropriate time had come, that God sent forth his son into the earth, at the fullness of the dispensation of the time, at the divine moment in human history, that's what it's saying. Jesus was born of a woman born under law. So the law existed. The law of sin and condemnation existed. And Jesus came under that in order to break it, to redeem those who were bound by the law of sin, that we might receive the adoptions of sons and daughters. So what is the fullness of the time? Jesus didn't come at any specific time in history. He came at a sp- or any random time in history. He came at a specific time in history. He came when there was a common language. Greek was spoke in the known world. Right? So Jesus came to what was called the known world, and it was the Mediterranean basin. That was what was considered the known world. And Jesus came, and there was a common language in the known world, and it was Greek, and it was very specific. It didn't matter what you spoke. If you were going to interact in the government or you were going to interact in the world that you lived in, you had to speak Greek. You had to have a working knowledge of Greek in the ancient world, or you weren't going anywhere. And so there was a common language in the known world. And it was Greek. There was a common infrastructure. The Roman government ruled the known world. And there, was a com- and there was a common government. So they had a common infrastructure. They had roads. So the Romans came in, right? They basically bludgeoned you into submission. They beat you to a pulp and ground you into powder and literally erased your, 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 uh, your nation. But then, hey, good news. We're going to put some roads in for you guys and a, you know, some Roman schools. And you know, we're going to conscript your guys into the army. So basically, they beat you. They destroyed everything about you. But then they put a few roads in for you. They did build infrastructure. That's one of the things that happened with Rome. And so God waited for a common language, a government, albeit an oppressive government. But that government, the Roman government, was stable. They had a saying called Pax Romana. And so everything was about the peace of Rome. Rome didn't want, Rome fought wars for treasure and for territory, but Rome maintained the empire with an iron fist because they did not want anybody uprising against them at all. They literally destroyed the Hasidims after Jesus was born in 70 AD when they came and destroyed the temple, and they literally murdered an entire sect of uh, Jewish uh, uprisers, the Zealots, because they wouldn't keep the peace. They kept trying to keep the peace, trying to keep the peace, and these zealots would just kept fighting Rome, fighting Rome, fighting Rome, and finally Rome had enough, and they literally raised the temple to the ground, went and found out where the zealots were. It was many places, but ultimately Masada. They built a rampart. You ever guys ever seen Masada? This is how determined these Romans were. They're up on the top of the mountain, right? So there, it was Herod built a fortress on the top of this mountain. It was a, it was a fortress, like, you, like fortress of solitude, I guess. But you couldn't, get, you couldn't easily get there. And so the Romans spent months, okay? This is how determined. Rather than just letting those people lie up there and starve, which they could have done, they could have just built a camp downtown and around the base of the mountain. You know, they could have said, okay, we're going to build a fort here for a while until all those people die and starve out, and then we're just going to move on with life. They didn't do that. These people had committed treason against Rome, and every single one of them is going to die. And so they, they built a rampart up this mountain. took them months and months, if not years, to build this rampart up the mountain for one sole purpose, to destroy those who had violated the peace of Rome. And so Rome, then they went through the wall, they went into Masada, and they murdered them all. Well, they already found them dead. They had already, most of them had already killed themselves. But the point being, they were pretty determined to keep the peace of Rome. (laughs) 
And so it was a common government, a common city. They had free cities. You see it even in the New Testament that Rome had given free cities. I think it was Philippi. Philippi was a free city. And uh, there was all this uprising. The Christians were causing all this uprising. And the city officials weren't concerned about the uprising. They were concerned that the Romans were going to come and take away their status as a free city, which means there was no Roman garrison there. In other words, you guys are so cool. We like you. We totally dig you. We're not going to put any soldiers in your town. But if you guys can't chill out and you guys keep, you guys start, you know, going off, then we're going to have to put soldiers in your town. You see it in the New Testament. That was what their concern was. That was one of the reasons why they were against the believer, because there was so much upheaval going on with, with Jesus that they were afraid that they would lose their status as a free city. Rome bludgeoned the world into submission, but they brought a common language. So even though they were Romans, they spoke Latin. Most of the, Roman, most of the Romans were educated in, in Greek philosophy, Greek understanding, Greek literature, and they spoke Greek. Even the Greek was considered the high of the day, the big, the big time of the day. And so these Romans beat the world into submission. They create a common government. And out of this common government, in this time and in this season, one guy named Julius Caesar, et tu brute, right? Julius Caesar is murdered and his adopted nephew comes to power. In the times and the seasons, Jesus was born. Who's his adopted na- uh, nephew? His name is Gaius Octavius. And so he adopted his, grand, his uncle. So he's the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar's murdered. And Julius Caesar willed that Gaius Octavius take his place. And so Gaius Octavius took the name Caesar, which became a common title of all of the Caesars. Right? So he took Julius's name, Caesar Gaius Octavius. But as he did, Octavius forced his will on the Roman Senate and on the Roman government. Watch this. You think these people were nice people? And he told them to give him a title. I want a title designated by the Senate that shows the people who I am. And so they kept coming up with all these different names. And none of them, he rejected all of them except one. Augur or Augustus. And it means divine. (laughs) Caesar Augustus means Caesar the divine. And so his name is Caesar Gaius Octavius Augustus, or Caesar Gaius Octavius the Divine. That the whole world, when they mentioned his name, he would be known as Caesar Augustus, or Caesar the Divine. He was the one that began to implement Caesar worship. It's interesting. Augustus establishes himself as the king of the world at the very time and season that the king of the world was born. Isn't that interesting? Always a countermeasure, you know? devil coming up with this crazy stuff. Caesar the divine. The first Caesar that was called the divine was Augustus. And it was there in the same time and season dispensation that Jesus was born. He decides he's going to do a global census, right? Times and seasons. You don't think God's in control of this world? There is a divine plan that God has, and he will orchestrate all nations into that divine plan. His plan in your life is individual. His plan in the church's life is individual. There's a lot of variables there. There's a lot of variables in God's plan. You are the biggest variable. But there is one plan that there is no variable. God will determine. God has a determined plan for the earth. He has a determined plan. There was a determined plan for the coming of the first coming of the Messiah. And there was a determined plan for the second coming of the Messiah. And when that time comes, God will cause all of the nations to alter into that plan. That's when you will see God's sovereignty. And in fact, God's sovereignty in your life is I've given you a destiny, but you must accumulate yourself into my will. God has, a, God has a destiny and a purpose for churches, people, places, things, nations, but there's a participation that has to happen in order for that to happen. When it comes to God's will, there's no participation that has to happen. He will force the issue. 
He doesn't force the issue in your life, but he will force the issue in his will. The Messiah was going to be born, and Jesus was, and the Father was going to force the issue. He was going to cause Gaius Octavius Caesar Augustus to come to power. And he was going to cause Caesar Augustus to be so greedy for gain that he would call for a census of the whole known world. So Caesar just comes into power. He wants to know, hey, what do I rule? How much money can I make off this deal? Right? So the Romans wanted to do a census in order for taxation and military conscription. And so he ordered a, tax, a census of the whole world in order so that he could figure out how much money he could take from all of the nations that he was ruling and also to understand how many males of military age he could draw from them in order to conscript them into the army. The Jews were exempt from conscription in the military, the only nation that was, by the way. <laughs> only nation Rome ruled that exempted, that were exempted from military conscription was the Jews, but they were not exempt from their taxation. You see that all through the New Testament, right? And they were brutal taxers, brutal And it says, so in in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census be taken of the whole world. This was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So time dates this thing and specifically tells us when this happened. And everyone was ordered to go to their place of birth to register. So Joseph went from Nazareth down to Judea, Bethlehem of David, because that's where he belonged. And he went there to register. So wherever you were born, so let's say in the United States, whatever city you were born in, you were ordered to go back to that city. Whatever country you were born in, if you were a foreigner and you were under this united government, you had to go back to your country and you had to go back not just to your country, but to the city of your birth. And while the, while the time came, to, the baby was born and she gave birth to her firstborn. She walked him and swaddled, she swaddled him and placed him in a manger because there was no room in the end. So Joseph is living in Nazareth. A decree comes down from Rome. Guess what? Rome doesn't care. They don't care how much hardship this is going to cause you, Right? I mean, look around today. Look at COVID. They don't care how much hardship it causes you. It's a government decree. They don't care. They didn't care that Joseph had to leave Nazareth with a pregnant wife, the Bible says, who was heavy with child. Right? So ladies, you'll appreciate this. There's a difference between being with child and being heavy with child. Right? So she's heavy with child. She has to take, Joseph has to load up his family because the government ordered it. They didn't give him any money. They didn't, get, they didn't care. We don't care what this is going to cost you. You're going to pack up and you're going to be, and you're going to go down for that census. Once they went to the town for the census, they had to wait there until the census was complete. Well, how long is this going to be? Six months, a year? They didn't tell you. You didn't have a right to know. We're going to lock you down. You're going to stay here and you're going to do what you're told. They didn't care. They didn't care that Joseph had to leave his home. They didn't care that Joseph had to travel with a weak wife. They didn't, they didn't care that Joseph had to go to a town in a city where he had no means of income. No means of income. None. Go there and live there until we tell you you can leave. They didn't care. You know, we, we like, I, Romans were brutal, brutal, brutal people. They crucify hundreds at the drop of a hat just to make a point. Come into a town and into a city. Say, wasn't there an uprising here 10 years ago? Yeah, there was. Okay, take 10 men of this, of this group and crucify them and let them know there's a new sheriff in town. That's what they would do. They would shed blood, commit injustices in the street anytime they wanted for any reason. Time of great darkness, time of great hopelessness, in comes the light. They had imposed hardship upon them, and they didn't really care. Didn't really care. How'd you like that? Close up shop. Why? You got to go back to your birth of birth. 
I, I don't, I, I can't do that. I can't, I got a mortgage, so we don't care. I, I, I have a lot of things going on here. I have contracts. We don't care. I, I, I just got this job. I don't know how I'm going to provide for, us, for myself. I don't care. I don't care. You will be in your hometown by this date, or you will be arrested, and some are, and most likely, either thrown in jail and long forgotten about, or if you got a good break, he'd probably kill you. Romans threw you in jail. You just went there. It was no, you, didn't, you didn't know when you were getting out. They didn't have some legal institution or any system of laws. It was law by fiat. It was law by command. It was law by impulse. If the emperor liked you, he'd release you. If the governor liked you, he'd release you. There was no system that you could operate under. And if you weren't a Roman citizen, you had no rights under Roman law. None. None. So if you were a foreigner and you didn't show up for the census and they found out, they'd throw you in jail. You have no rights. How long are you going to keep me until we feel like it? What if you forget about me? Oh, well, it's been a good life. (laughs) This is how these people were. Hardship imposed because of the circumstances. And so all of these things are happening, and he's forcing the issue. God is forcing the issue in order for what? That he might fulfill a promise that was given long ago. Micah 5.2, you, O Bethlehem of Ephathrah. Yo, you are small of the tribes of Judah. Out of you will come the ruler of Israel, whose origins will be of ancient times. The one that will come forth from you will be of divine origin. That's why when the, when, if you know the story where the, the wise men went into uh, Israel and they met with Herod, and Herod didn't know because Herod wasn't a believer. Herod wasn't a Jew. Herod was an appointed king by Rome. And so Herod goes, brings the prophets and go, where's the Messiah going to be born? They fired it off. They didn't even have to think about it. In, Jew, in Bethlehem. They go, where's the Messiah going to be born? He's kind of, they're kind of like, you got me up at two in the morning to ask me that question? It's in, it's in Micah, Bethlehem. They didn't have to consult. They knew this verse. God forced the issue. He forced, he forced Joseph from a place of comfort in Nazareth to an uncomfortable position in order that he could fulfill the promise. And I would say the same thing to you. Sometimes God forces you from your comfortable circumstances into a place of upheaval and disarray in order that he, A, may get your attention, and B, that he may fulfill a promise that he gave to you long ago. Yeah. We think promises are going to come with candy canes and gumballs. Promises come with adversity. Promises do not come with candy canes and gumballs. Who told you that? It's not in your Bible. It, every time God fulfilled a promise, it was through great, great travail. In great transformation, right? We, we have this fairy Jesus mentality that we teach that is not scripture. It's not biblical. So sometimes our, our tendency is complacency. Mankind's tendency is to be complacent, right? We don't like change. We don't like it. We don't like it. We hate change. We don't like it. But the bridge from where you are to where you need to be is called change. Complacency is in God's nature. It's not in God's nature. Complacency is in human nature. Complacency is not in God's nature. God is moving, 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 forever moving. The Lord never settles, nor does he settle in your life, and you should be glad that God is trying to move you, trying to move you from what? Glory to glory. Glory to glory. He's trying to move you from one place of weightedness to another place of weightedness. And that transition process oftentimes comes with a lot of upheaval, comes with a lot of shifting of circumstances, right? Everything's moving. Everything's thrown up in the air. And as he's throwing you up in the air, if you will listen to him, he'll bring destiny. He'll bring destiny. A lot of things. You look at the life of Joseph. You talk about his life being thrown up in the air. His, his wife comes to him, his future wife, and she's like, I'm pregnant, but it's not as it seems. 
You know, I'm pregnant not by you, but I just want to let you know it's not as it seems. Right? That'll throw your life up into upheaval. He didn't know what to do. He had a vision from God. God said, take her as your wife. God brings about a promise in your life through upheaval a lot of times, Christian. That's why I tell you, when there's times of upheaval, look for the Lord. What is he doing? What is he saying? We, you know, this is what we do. We act no different than the culture. We retreat and go and hobble down and hobble, hobble. No kingdom mindset, no kingdom philosophy, no kingdom thinking. What is the Lord doing in this hour? What are you saying, Lord? What are you doing? What is your word to me in this hour? He has one. He doesn't give it to you by default. We think God just is up there handing out words. Here, he doesn't give you anything unless you ask for him, Christian. You don't ask for him, he will leave you the same. I know that's hard. He will leave you where you are if you will not ask. He will constantly be trying to shift you because he loves you. He doesn't want to leave you the same. He loves you too much to leave you the same, but he cannot move you unless you cooperate. He cannot. And he will not. That's hard. Oh, that's not loving Jesus. Man, read your Bible. We, are the, we, are the, we have more Bibles in our world today than ever before. We have more translations, yet the church is more biblically illiterate than it has ever been. We are biblically illiterate. Illiterate. We make it up as we go along. We have your word. We understand him by his word. We understand his nature by his word. We understand who, what he's doing by his word and by his spirit. Those two things combined give us something called revelation. Biblically illiterate. We want to say, well, I think God's doing this and I think God's doing that. And then when you tell somebody something like this, that God cannot and will not do anything in your life without faith and obedience, they go, well, I don't believe that. Well, I don't believe that that's true. Really, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And obedience is greater than sacrifice. Both of those are verses. So how would you come up with your philosophy? What I'm telling you comes straight out of the scripture, yet I will say something like that, that God will not do anything with you unless you demonstrate faith and unless you demonstrate obedience. No, I don't believe that at all. You'd be shocked how many people say that. And where do you get that from? Well, I just don't think God's that way. You see God's love. God's love, Kevin. I'm like, define love. I got no problem with that. God is love. Define that. They can't define it. They, they look at love as an emotional experience. That's not, that's not biblical love. Biblical love is not an emotional experience. Biblical love is an intention. Biblical love is not, I feel for you. Biblical love is, I look at you and I want to benefit you. That's biblical love. Has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with emotion. Nothing. God's love for you doesn't have anything to do with a human emotion. That means, does he not feel for you? Of course he feels for you. But his love is greater than his feeling. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? He feels for you, but his love is great. Look at your kids. You feel for them, but your love is greater than the feeling that you have. It's true. That's how he is. The son was given to restore relationship. He was given in the dispensation or the fullness of the time. It was by divine order, divine right. He did it. He orchestrated all of the nations to funnel that thing to happen in order to fulfill a promise. You want a promise? You should want promises. But hold the chair, man. Enjoy the ride. It's a good ride. <laughs> it's a good ride. But God will change things in your life. He will move you from complacency to destiny. You cannot have both. You cannot have complacency and destiny. The two are diametrically opposed. 
Complacency and destiny are on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. You cannot have destiny and have complacency. It's impossible. You cannot stay the same and yet believe God's going to give you destiny. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. And you'll die in the wilderness like so many. The field is littered with Christians who think they can have destiny yet maintain complacency. It doesn't work. God's got destiny for you. You should want it. You should want what God has for you. And you should be willing to go all in with everything you got because he's got something greater than anything you could ever possibly imagine. Personally, relationally, spiritually, with your business, with your future, every sphere of your life, God has something significantly greater than you can possibly imagine. Doesn't matter the sphere. He's got something good for you and you should want it. God came to restore relationship. Man was created for meaningful relationship. But meaningful relationship means nothing without meaningful choice. Right? God doesn't want just relationship. He wants meaningful relationship. He chooses you. He wants you to choose him. That's how he is. He wants ladies. Can I get a witness here from any of the women? Right? You want that guy to choose you, don't you? Right? Dudes, we don't know. We just kind of stumble into it. We get married and we're like, hey, I'm in love. I don't know how I got here, but I'm here. Yeah, I love her. She's great. I don't want anybody else. Yeah, I want her. But we don't know how we get there. We just get there. All right? <laughs> Women want that exceptionality. They want, to be accept- they want to be exceptional. They want to be chosen among all others. Thank you. I got one woman. Yes, thank you. That agrees with me. Right? You, ladies, you get that nature from your father. Your father gave you that nature. Both male and female bear the nature of God. Women bear different aspects of God's nature. Men bear different aspects of God's nature. God divided Adam. You understand that? He divided Adam. And he didn't just take a bone out of Adam or take him from the inside of Adam. That's what the Bible says, from the inside. Took him from his side. He took blood, tissue, and water. And he formed her from bone, well, bone, blood, and tissue, and water. All through, well, bone, tissue, and, and, and blood. Here's another scientific fact for you. All three bone, bone cells can be replicated. Skin cells can be replicated. And so can blood cells be replicated. And so God took from Adam the very thing that he could multiply. And he made Eve. But when he took her, he took parts of his nature. Adam was not complete any longer. His sensitive side was gone. I don't know. His, his, ability, his ability to express beauty was gone. Right? I mean, I don't know, but there was something, there was a part of Adam's nature that was taken from him. That's why the woman, the woman we, we diminish the nature of woman so many times, but she too bears the nature of her father in a different way. A different way. The compassion of God is more exemplified through women than it ever is through men. We're like, kill them all, you know? <laughs> Just saying. The desire of the woman to be chosen among all others is exactly what she gets. That's Jesus has the complete nature of man and woman in himself. He's complete. And that's why he made Adam, male and female. He made them, but then he separated them. And the two shall become what? Uh, You get it. The two shall be one. Ehad. It's singular. The two shall be singularly unified. And God's desire is that man meaningfully choose him, not mechanically choose him. That we relate to him in meaning. That's why he talks about with our worship, with our giving, with our fellowship. Everything is in the New Testament is to be given, expressed out of a will. 
That's why it tells you, you, want, you don't want to give money, keep it. Keep it. He doesn't want it unless it's meaningfully given. He doesn't want you in church if you're going to sludge through the door and complain, oh, I guess I got to go to church today. That's not a meaningful relationship that he's looking for. He's looking for a meaningful relationship. Anybody get an Alexa this year? Anybody? No? Anybody not want to admit they got an Alexa? A Google, right? Google Voice, whatever those little robots are that, that are now listening in on your, all of your conversations in your house. And so now Amazon is hearing everything you have to say and tracking your every movement along with your cell phone. So anyway, but Alexa, like, you're freaking me out, man. Alexa, Alexa responds mechanically. You can give it an order and it does it. You can ask it a question and it responds, right? Responds mechanically. So does Google, but you don't have a really meaningful relationship with that thing because the meaningful relationship, well, no, my, my Alexa tells me that it loves me. Yeah, because you're telling it to tell you it loves you. Tell me you love me, Alexa. I love you, you know, captain, my captain. You know, you can give it, uh, make it program itself to t- call you anything you want. It, yeah, literally, it'll call you any name. Any name you give it, it'll, it'll tell you, to, it'll call you that. Most beautiful person in the whole world, it'll call you. Alexa, who am I? You're the most beautiful person in the whole world. It was saying that to you because you programmed it to say that. There's not a lot of meaning there. God could have made us mechanical, but he chose not to. Mankind broke the relationship, but God still desired it. This is why he came, to restore this relationship. He was willing to give everything to restore it. That's how meaningful it is to him. That's how meaningful we are to him. He would give anything. Even understanding that I can't have all of them, I understand, but I can have some. And if I can have some, then that's enough for me. I want them all, but if they all won't come, at least I can have some. That's how meaningful this is. It's unbelievable when you think of he so loved, God so loved. Now we're given a choice. The reason for man's condemnation is because we choose darkness. The reason that we stay and lost, man's going to be a lot of reasons why men are condemned and women are condemned, but it isn't going to be because of Jesus. It's going to be because they willfully chose to not come to the light. Once the light comes, there is an accountability to respond. Once the gospel is proclaimed, there is an accountability to respond. Somebody said all should not hear the gospel twice until everyone's heard it once. Well, I would say that America, we've heard it more than once. There's an accountability on the gospel that when the light is shined to you and God invites you to come, you are to respond. It uses the word believe. Those who ever believe, it's the Greek word pistos, and it means a conscious choice by willful action. That's why I tell you guys, there's no understanding in faith. Faith has no understanding. Well, when I understand this and I examine all the meaningful facts and I weigh the pros against the cons, then maybe I'll believe. You'll never believe because faith is not based on meaningful facts. Faith is based on a willful choice and a conscious action. You choose You choose. Faith has no feeling and faith has no understanding. Mm Mm-hmm. You believe in airplanes, you get on an airplane, you believe that that airplane's gonna take off and take you wherever it's supposed to take you. But you don't have any understanding of that airplane. You don't understand why the rivets are compressed and why it's made of aluminum. You don't understand jet fuel, jet dynamics, jet propulsion, Thermal or uh, the uh, physical physics physical science of lift and thrust. You don't understand the weight capacity by distribution. You don't understand all of the mechanics that cause that plane to fly, and every single one of them is important. And if that doesn't matter, if none of those things matter, or those things are out of balance, the plane goes down. But you don't understand that. But you, we get on airplanes. 
Why do we get on airplanes? Because we believe that they say it's safe. We believe that we say it can fly, which you don't understand it. It's the same way. You make a conscious, willful decision into something you don't understand. That's what faith in Christ is. It's a conscious, willful decision into something you don't fully understand. I gave my life to Jesus. I didn't understand anything. I understand very little. I understand I was a sinner. I was lost. And if I died today, I was going to hell. Yes, I said hell. I was going to hell. I was eternally separated from God. I was lost in my sin. And I could not save myself. That was crystal to me. That was all I knew. (laughs) And they said, Jesus wants to save you from your sin. If you give your life to Christ, you come out of darkness and into light. Some variance of that was told to me. I didn't understand everything, but I did. I went all in on it. And I struggled after I gave my life to Christ. I struggled with a lot of understanding, but I knew something was different, and I was saved, and I was born again. And as I pursued God, I came into understanding. Understanding in Christianity is on the back end. God does not give you understanding on the front end. Understanding of the gospel, understanding of the kingdom, understanding of his heart, understanding of his ways is never on the front end. It's always on the back end. The only thing God gives to an unredeemed man, a lost person, is the understanding that you are lost and you cannot save yourself. That understanding he makes very clear. You are lost. And then he gives you the understanding that if you'll receive Christ, you'll be born again. You'll be saved. You don't understand that. But all of a sudden, there's something in your heart that says, hey, I think this is real. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Think about when you got saved. How did you get saved? What was your experience like? You should remember that experience. Remember where you were and remember that transition point for you. What was that transition point for you? What changed in your heart? What made that happen? What did you understand at the time? And what were you experiencing at the time? I wasn't a guy that came to Christ from God's love. That was never me. Told me God loved me. I'd be like, yeah, all right, whatever. I come from a hard background. I needed the hell message. That's what I needed. I'm like, do we have to preach hell? Hell yeah, we have to preach hell. Yes, we do. Not because God isn't loving and gracious and kind, because God is loving and gracious and kind. And there will be some that respond out of mercy and love and compassion, but there will be other hard-headed individuals that need to know that unless you believe that you are, he is who he says he is, you will die in your sins and you will be eternally damned. You need to understand that too. And I was that guy. It became very clear to me. <laughs> God loves you. I'm like, oh, that's nice. God loves me. Yeah. Well, if he loves me so much, why doesn't he give me a car? If he loves me so much, why don't I have a better job? If he loves me so much, that was me. I was that guy. I was the cynic of the love of God because I come from because of the background that I come from right I didn't come from a very kind loving background <laughs> now I have kindness of Jesus in my heart thank you God that's why it was so dramatic the love of God in my heart shifted me so radically that's why the love of God means so much to me that's why I led this message with the love of God because the love of God is in me now a love that I never had before and I know it's real But that that love wasn't leading me there. (laughs) If you don't know Jesus, you're lost, man. You're lost. Christ offers you compassion. He offers you love. He invites you to come to him. And in your hopelessness and your despair, he invites that. The Bible says, but if you trample the son of God underfoot and you treat the blood that he shed as a common thing, there remains nothing for you except fear of impending judgment. If you treat the blood that Jesus shed as a common thing and you treat his offer of salvation as something that is common and you reject it, nothing is left. The Bible's very clear, except fear of impending judgment. Hmm? That's my word. That's what Pastor Kevin needed. You needed to understand that what's being offered to you is not a common thing. 
what's being offered to you is not something that's just to be looked down your nose at. The king has come down and he has lowered himself beneath you to offer you something that there's no guarantee you'll get a second chance. There's no guarantee he's gonna give it to you twice. No guarantee. Don't treat it as common. He came to fill the void, the void of the gifts and the void of man's empty heart. We have an empty heart. We all got gifts, right? That's what we do. We like to, nothing wrong with gifts, nothing wrong with people, nothing wrong with possessions, nothing wrong with persons, but we're created to worship. If we don't worship Jesus, we're gonna worship something. It's inevitable. I don't worship anything. You worship, most, people, most people worship is their intellect. They worship what they believe, what they think. That's why I said, go back to, you know nothing. <laughs> Doesn't matter what I think. I worship what he thinks. Doesn't matter what I understand. I worship what he understands. I worship nothing of my own. It's what he says and him alone. Man worships. We're created to worship. We worship our intellect. We worship our thoughts. We worship our opinions. We worship our beliefs. Churches worship their doctrines. We worship our every belief system contrary to Jesus. We worship possessions, positions, and persons. Say it with me. Nothing wrong with. Come on, help me. This is good for you. There's nothing wrong with possessions, positions, or persons. There's nothing wrong with that. You were created to have those things, but those things are created to be subordinated to him, right? My possessions are not to take a higher place in my life than Jesus. My position is not to take a higher place in my life than Jesus. People in my life are not to take, here's the rat, here's the, here's the, I'll give you a real good rub here, but now I gotta, I'm running out of time. But people are not to take a higher position in your life than Jesus. I've gotta take care of my family. What did Jesus say? Bury, let the dead bury the dead. Follow me. I just took a wife. I can't follow you, you know? I mean, read the story. Jesus tells us to love nothing more than him to serve no one more than him. That doesn't mean I don't love my wife and I don't serve my wife, but I don't have the ability to love my wife without him. I don't have the ability to say, come on, any husbands in the room? You got, you got the ability to love that woman? No, seriously. Can you in and of yourself love that woman? Can you? Really? If you, if you, if you can honestly say that, yes, I am the most magnificent husband in the world and I have this thing on husbandry zeroed and I know how to love a woman perfectly. First of all, A, get a class together because we'd love for you to teach the class. But before we do that, before we do that, we want to interview your wife, okay? So before we put you in a position to teach all the rest of us peons how to love women, we want to, we want to interview that woman and find out exactly where she's coming from on your opinion of yourself, you see? So the point is, is that we, we, I cannot do those things without Jesus. I cannot love, steward, lead, honor, bless, guide, correct, whatever, my children without the Lord. It amazes me how quickly people give up Jesus for another person. Happens wholesale, wholesale. Oh, I met a guy pastor, but he's not a believer. I'm like, tick, 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 tick. He just really isn't into this Jesus thing. So, you know, he doesn't want me coming to church all the time. I go, so you're gonna give up your identity for this person. You're gonna give up who you are for this person. You, your, your identity in Christ means that little to you that you would sacrifice that for this person because they're an unbeliever. I said, you cannot go where they are. They must come where you are. They must not only come where you are physically, they must come where you are emotionally and they must come where you are spiritually. And if they cannot, then you have to sacrifice that. Ouch, exactly, that's what sacrifice means. Sacrifice means ouch. Yeah, yeah, it's true. That's a thought. Anyway, God comes to fill the void, the emptiness in our heart. 
He wants us to call on him. The emptiness and the longing in our heart is only filled by him. Your wife is only, you know, people, when we get married, it's like people that aren't married are praying for their husband and wife. And then people that have been married are praying for their singleness to come back again. You know, I mean, it's like we have this. See, Sherry laughed. I got my wife to laugh. <laughs> it's true, right? Because we think this person's going to solve everything for you. That person's going to solve nothing for you. That's, that person's going to compound your problem. Marriage doesn't make you happy. Marriage makes you holy. And all the married people said, Amen. that's right. Marriage doesn't make you happy. Marriage makes you holy. It forces you to deal with your self-centered, narcissistic viewpoints and the person that you are. That woman will force you to deal with you. And you, in your, your way, will force her to deal with herself, and that's how the home is formed. It's not designed to make you happy. It's designed to make you holy. But we think that the marriage will make us happy. The marriage, I mean, yes, there's happiness in the marriage. We all admit that. You know, there's a joy in the marriage. But it isn't this overwhelming, self-fulfilling, self-sustaining thing. Just like your car is in this overwhelming, self-fulfilling, self-sustaining thing. Just like the success that you achieve isn't this overwhelming, self-fulfilling, sustaining thing. It, it has a purpose, but it doesn't, it doesn't meet everything. Jesus is the only, he's trying to get across to us. He's the only one that can meet everything. In him we live, move, and have our being, Acts 17, 28. The son was given to show the way to eternal life. This is the last part. He's, he's given to fill a void. You've got a void in your life, Jesus can fill it. Even as a Christian, you're born again, but you've never allowed God to fill that void. He's not become your all in all. He's not truly your everything. He's my everything. I've learned this the hard way. I've learned it the hard way, that Jesus is my everything. He is my everything. That's all I want to talk about. That's all I want to think about. That's all I want to live for. That's everything is Jesus, Period. Well, you're a pastor. Listen, it wasn't always this way. The church trained me in a different way than the Bible teaches me to live. The church trains you to almost live this religious expression. But yet the Bible teaches you to live this just all-encompassing relationship that comes, everything comes from him. Everything flows from him. Everything about me comes from him. That's not an easy place to get, but we're all invited to that place. God gives the way to eternal life. The Bible says this, John 17, I'm closing. John 17, 2, said, you've given him authority. Jesus is again speaking of himself. He said, I have authority over all flesh. Who has the right to judge the living and the dead? One. His name is Jesus. He's the only one. All judgment's been given to the son. And he says, in my judgment, all I will give eternal life to as many as are produced through me. Mm-hmm. That's what the Greek says. The Greek says, as many as are produced through me. When you come to Christ, you're born again. You're produced through Jesus. And when you're produced through Jesus, Jesus says, I give you eternal life. He has the right to give. The only one that has the right to give eternal life is Jesus. That's right. Somebody should have told that to Walt Disney. He's frozen in cryogenics waiting for eternal life, right? So I tell people, all these billionaires trying to live forever and freezing their body and their organs. I'm like, man, dude, Jesus has given it away for free. You don't even have to spend any money. He's given eternal life away to everybody if you want it. <laughs> Bible says this. Why, why, is this. why are we in this situation? Isaiah 59.1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not too short that it cannot save you. Nor is his ear too heavy that he cannot hear you. But your iniquities have separated you. Iniquities are issues in the bloodline. We are separated from God because we have iniquity issues in the bloodline. 
going back to Adam. Adam's sin, that iniquity comes to all of us, and that is our separation. The iniquity in our bloodline has separated us. And the sins, the personal, arrogant, malicious, self-seeking actions hide God's presence from you. That's what he's saying. He's telling the unbeliever, you're separated from God, not because God wants it. You're separated in God because you were born separated. You say, why can't I see God? Because all you're looking at is you. The only person you're seeing is you. You're seeing your problems, your wants, your hopes, your dreams, your desires. The narcissistic gospel we preach in our churches today is it's all about you. It has nothing to do with you. Let me say it here. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him. Seek first the kingdom of God and what is right to him and everything will come to you. But everything will come to you only when it has everything to do with him. The Lord says in Zechariah, return to me and I will return to you. If you're lost, you've never known Jesus, God is calling you to himself this morning. If you're a backslider, inevitably when we talk to believers and their crowds, particularly at this time of the year, somebody has left Jesus and is listening again from a faraway place. The Lord says, come back, come back. I don't have, any, I don't have anything against you. I have everything for you. I'll take away what's between us. I'll deal with it. I'll fix the brokenness. You can't fix the brokenness. Only Jesus can. God has made a way and he's given us a choice. So we talked about Rome this morning. So I'm going to show you guys a little and walk you through the Roman road. Those of you watching my stream, we honor you. And I know there are people that watch this stuff out of curiosity. I've had a few people say, I'm not a church guy. But I, my, my nephew says to me, I don't like church, Kevin, Uncle Kevin. But I start watching you and I can't turn it off. <laughs> because it's for you, Noah. This is for you. The Roman road, 323, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, every single one of us is a sinner, broken, weak, wayward, wicked, all of us. The penalty for that sin is death, eternal separation, a death that keeps going, death, 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 a death that's never ending. But the gift of God is eternal life, 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 life that never ends in Christ Jesus. We're all sinners. We're lost. We're hopeless. We need Jesus. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. He died for us as sinners in order to take us from our sin unto salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, there it is. And believe in your heart that he's been raised from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart you believe unto what is right. And with the mouth you confess unto salvation. And then Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He said, I don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what he's done. Whoever calls. Whosoever. Your name's in the Bible. You didn't know it. You're a whosoever. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're watching my live stream and you're watching this, this at some point in time, this message is for you. God is calling you from where he is, offering you an, an invitation. You say, okay, I'll take it, man. How do I do it? Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. What do I do? I'm going to lead you in a prayer. It's a 45-second prayer. We're going to pray here. Elevate's going to pray with you. And if you're in there and you're with anybody else, I want you to pray. You say, I'm with my friends, man. I don't want them to know what I'm doing. Then stop living for your friends and live for Jesus. When you stand before the Lord, you're not going to stand there with your friends. 
You're gonna give an account for your life and your life alone. You can't control what other people do, but you can control what you do. And you need to make a conscious choice to give your life to Christ today. It's the greatest thing you could ever do. No looking back, man. So let's pray. Just say, dear Jesus. Come on, pray with us, guys. Uh, Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior, and I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. So I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me, and I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. In all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. You say, that's it? No, that's the start of it. We celebrate with you. If you prayed that prayer, even if you prayed it in rededication, we we celebrate that prayer with you. If you want some information, hit us up in the message or send us an email. We'd love to connect with you. And we're going to close the service. We thank you for watching. We thank everybody that's here this morning. We bless you, and we're going to close it with the blessing that God commands over his people. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way, and may he give you peace, and may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So I want you guys to know that we have 10,000 new Facebook followers.